Lifted from no to nothing ontological oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Last week, we dove headlong into the idea of color. And while there, we found a uniting element with the previous show, Symmetry. Much as the two concepts just mentioned are philosophically elegant in their ability to be both abstract and concrete, today's topic is similar and thus quite mind-bending. Just as one light spectrum contains infinite colors, and just as a simple line can be as symmetrical as a complex fractal, so too can harmony be both one and many. So harmony, um, we kind of stumbled upon that one at the end of last week's episode. <laughs> I still cannot remember the one, the other one that I had. Oh um, dear, yeah. But I'm sure uh, you know <laughs> some sometime down the road we'll stumble upon it. Um, but yeah, so harmony uh, is is there a way of adequately describing what harmony is? No, <laughs> <laughs> my son, the music teacher and composer, will be desperately disillusioned by that response. So, uh, yeah, on the surface of it, I'd have to, because there are so many different applications of the term. But uh, I think that if we go with the idea that harmony is a balancing of parts to create an integrative whole. Hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And that's, I think that that's a pretty good description. Um, but it's going to raise a lot of questions we'll see as, mm-hmm. as we get going along. So have philosophers thought about harmony? Since the beginning. <laughs> um, you know, Aristotle, Plato, I mean, if we go to uh, Socrates said, a harmony cannot be in a state other than that of the elements out of which it is compounded. Which in itself is a huge conversation. So uh, a harmony cannot be in a state other than what the individual elements intended things to be. So it's kind of a, if not a determinism there, this goes back to our talk last week in, in a sense. Um, you know, if you, if you break human beings down into our constitutive alpha, water, carbon, oxygen, so on, put them in nice little tubes next to each other. <laughs> that's not a human, but those are the compositions of the human. And so he's sort of saying that. Yeah. And um, yeah, this really does go well with um, what I've been studying, which is, um, you know, human development. And um, I, I had a pretty interesting discussion in my class this past week mm-hmm. talking about the same thing, which was, um, you know, the, the, specific theory that we're studying, relational developmental systems, um, sort of touts itself as being um, an integrative um, theory. So, you know, I've talked about it the past couple episodes, so I won't get into it a lot, but you have mechanistic theories, sort of deterministic ones, you know, that say, okay, everybody's made up of molecules and elements, and since the Big Bang, everything got thrown in motion, and so it's just continuing the way it is. And then you have, um, you know, other theories that say, uh, well, you know, as you grow up, you mature, and so you you necessarily um, progress through these steps. Um, and, you know, there's this sort of deterministic feel to them. And re- relational developmental system says, well, you know, if you 
it's really not this either or scenario rather than these Cartesian splits. Um, you know, the, each one integrates things, you know, you have, you, you have your genes and you're, you're limited by your genes to an extent, but really your genes don't predict your behavior. Your environment determines which genes get flipped on and off. Yes. And yep. even, um, the person themselves is a source of their own development. So I just talked about this with Kevin Palmer yesterday. Um, you know, as because of our ability to um, self-reflect and have metacognition, the sort of narratives that we have about ourselves determine in what ways we develop. And so, um, you know, it, it, it has this, it gives people more autonomy over um, their own development, over the life course, you know, and, it, and really what I like about it is that it doesn't focus so much on childhood, just mm-hmm. saying that, okay, mm-hmm. well, human development happens in the first two decades of life and everything after that is just whatever, right? You know, they say, no, humans have a remarkable plasticity. Um, your ability to respond and, and learn and, and change over your lifetime is is vast. Um, and so the discussion that I had in the class with another student was, um, you know, I, he was talking about, um, you know, the fact that he liked it because it wasn't a deterministic theory. And I said, well, in what ways is it not, not deterministic, right? I, because in my mind, right, even though it's, it's integrative and it appears to give somebody free will, I think that where things become deterministic is almost once we give them a scientific basis, right? Once you start empirically um, examining something, it almost necessarily becomes reductionistic. And once you get to that point, it almost necessarily becomes deterministic. So, um, yeah. And, and that brings up what we're talking about with harmony is like, like you're talking about, if, is it, are we just harmonious, uh, you know, sort of extensions of the universe in the way that our atoms and molecules and and, you know, fibers and all the other things sort of, you know, work together mm-hmm. to be the the one continuous sort of creature that we mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. Um, or are we a, a distinct thing? Right? Am, am I just one thing? Uh, I'm me? Or am I really just a harmony of an infinite number subset of things? Not infinite. But, you know, a, a yeah. huge subset of things that are all working together in harmony. But really, me is just an illusion, right? Yeah. So, so there, there are those who have said that, that essentially that we are the way that the universe senses itself. So we become the sense organs for the universe. And you said something very similar to that a moment ago. Um, Pythagoras says that everything having to do with harmony and order is reducible to a mathematical principle. And music and math are very related, uh, mm-hmm. inarguably, right? Uh, and the oscillations of sound and music and so, but there's so many. And we were talking about this before the show, really. I mean, there are at least six different major subcategories that we could talk about in terms of harmony, aesthetics, and sociopolitics, and psychology, if you just brought up, and music, and 
uh, in philosophy itself, where where you seek harmony. So it, it may not be that we are all in harmony, but the ancients seem to suggest that we tend toward it. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> this is going to be it's going to be a complicated conversation <laughs> for sure. So does the concept of harmony necessitate component pieces? Yeah, that's an interesting question because if you go with well, let's start with Pythagoras and, and Socrates. If if you go with the idea that math as a divine principle, well, math is numbers. Hmm. What the numbers do, I mean, I'm oversimplifying, but what the numbers do would then lead to the harmonic whole. If but so I guess Leibniz, but I'm not even going to talk about Leibniz. <laughs> yeah, let's. I think that it might help us if we take a little bit of an aside. So I'll ask a different question first. Is harmony just mathematical? Do you think it's an, an association of numbers and the manifestation of that mathematics in our physical reality is what leads to harmony? I don't think so, because I find Pythagoras's eccentricity sort of <laughs> I was never good at math. <laughs> I'll just take a, an easy shot right now. Uh, but no, seriously, I don't think that everything is reducible to numbers. Now, computer programmers would be laughing at me, I suppose, for saying so, and algorithm writers. And yeah, Sabine Hassenfelder had a, a chapter in her book. Is yeah. everything math? Is right? everything math? I, I, it may be stubbornly humanistic of me to to say that, well, no, and because uh, I, I'll, I'll jump to Leibniz, even though we don't, uh, so there's uh, uh, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, uh, mid-1600s, early 1700s time frame, um, was working with the idea of harmony along with many other things, and and essentially was breaking down the possibilities for harmony and severely reducing it and therefore not absolutely accurately um, he would suggest that um, if uh, applying this if a, if a guitarist were playing a harmonic tune uh, uh, his fingers or her fingers their fingers would not actually be stroking the strings before the strings already were aligned to do what the intent was. Hmm. <laughs> so that there is um, an intramural, <laughs> an intra kind of thing going on within the object or the subject itself. It's, it's very complicated, but but and it's interesting, but I don't find that resonating. Yeah, yeah. So I think that probably what he's trying to say is there's not a har there's no harmony without melody. You have to have some note first, right? Before but he says, can... but it emerges from the strings. The fingers don't actually touch the strings until the strings already know the sound that's going to be made. Huh. Okay. All right. Yeah. Maybe. Um. I'll try asking this a different question. Oh, I'll, I'll try. I'll try asking it a different way. Some we can say some harmony is mathematical, right? I think yes, that that's a pretty course. safe. Yes, yes. So 
maybe we'll help clarify this question, which is, does harmony, the concept of harmony necessitate component pieces? Um, if we take a mathematical concept of harmony, mm-hmm. I think the question would be, is it the numbers that make up the harmony or is it the mathematics? Is it the equation? And I think that might sort of determine whether or not the component pieces exist. I, I w- if we could take one step further and call it a f- uh, make it a formula rather than an equation, I think so. I think so. Because when, when Plato was talking about harmony, and he got to the more human uh, component and, and said any conflicting interests between the different parts of humanity can be harmonized. Well, when you're talking about the different parts of humanity, you're talking about a diversity of human beings. And while Plato's idea of diversity is certainly not ours, um, it just is all the more important now. So I don't, I don't think that, I mean, if we looked at straight numbers, and this is why I'm going with your equation or even formula thing, if, if we did straight numbers, all we would do is say, well, there's just a certain number of people, and so their needs can be reducible and not put in the formula nearly as much as the needs of a larger group of people. I don't think at our best we do that. I think we try to look at, when we are at our best, the needs of everyone. And we, and, but there is a kind of nascent utilitarianism hmm. in the idea of using numbers to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I... I find this to be a, uh, an interesting sort of point because I think that the way that we use language um, sometimes leads us to think that maybe harmony doesn't have component pieces so much as being, well, because, I mean, somebody could say like, could, could you say that you are, you're at, at harmony with yourself, that you have a sense of harmony within yourself, right? You, you could say that, but, but again, but even that, I think, I think the component pieces, which is why I'm dancing around this with the numbers, Joel. It's a fascinating question. Um, harmony has been presented in so many ways, and 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 one of the most, the ancient, most ancient, going at it from, well, from the east, not just from the west, is to emphasize that harmony is not sameness. Harmony is not. Neutrality, harmony is not blandness, um, uh, and harmony isn't even uh, a lack of con- of conflict. It's it's integrating things into a less conflicting and more uh, perhaps acceptable or or less uh, itchy, angry. Oh, mm. yeah, yeah. So, I, music is a is a really good example, right? Because I I think what if you think about this musically, um, yeah. sometimes, um, you can uh, you can have this harmony. Uh, you know, a guitar is just a good example. You have six strings, so if you strum it, you're almost necessarily making some kind of harmony. The mm-hmm. strings are you're you're plucking six different notes. Um, and the notes of it might be the same, but they might be in different octaves even. Um, but yeah. regardless, every time you strum a guitar, you're making a harmony. Some of those harmonies sound really good. You know, you can have a major or a minor or a seventh or, or whatever, but you can have dissonant 
harmonies too. And sometimes a dissonant harmony might sound really bad. You know, if somebody who's never played before just frets, you know, a couple random strings and strums that you might go, oh, I don't like that. <laughs> but there are other times where a dissonant chord can really add uh, a feeling to a song. And I, I like using these in my music. You know, you can't use them all the time or back to back or this sort of thing. But sometimes if you just sneak one in, in an otherwise pleasant harmonic phrase, it gives the music a mysterious or dreamy or airy sort of feel Yes, that gives it this separation from just a, it, it makes it less bland. Right? Okay. So it's a pleasing effect. It's not necessarily a, a, a somnambulant effect. It's not pleasing in the sense of, oh, that's going to relax me and put me to sleep. Although some harmonies can do that. But the idea of pleasing makes a complication. Yes, because it's those specific chords are pleasing in that they create tension that is then resolved by a more um, a less dissonant chord later on. Yeah. So in that case, it's not that it's um, pleasing in the sense that it's relaxing, but it's actually just the opposite. It's exciting. It's something that that makes you want to listen closer. Now you need to hear what the resolution. Yes. Going to be. So you're actively involved, you're seeking, you're engaging. But for some of us, that's a pleasing yeah, yeah. thing. You know, I mean, uh, my, my dear friend who I talk with about theater every week, who applied the craft of dramaturgy and, and dr dramatic intention and in studying text for decades, um, we talk often about how audiences will go to a show and just want to be entertained. But if you go to a, a, a dramatic production and the playwright has written it in such a way that the expectation is that you're going to be engaged and you're going to be thinking about it and you're going to be doing work with the actors, there's a, a, there is a section of populace that doesn't want that. Mm. None of us wants that all, probably every single moment either. If I go to see Quantumania, which I will, <laughs> I don't expect, I, I'll, I'll be thinking storylines and so on, but I'm going to be entertained. I, uh, but I'm also going to see a, 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 perhaps a dim echo of ancient quest stories. Hmm. Okay. But sure, colors and, and sequences and scripts and all. So, so I think there's a there's a, an engagement of what you were talking about with music that I think is true aesthetically in art. When I do when I make a piece, um, and if it's about conflict that I that I feel or that I sense or have an impression or even a surrealistic expression of uh, within a person or within a culture, I want it. I hope that it's engaging, um, but I don't look at it, I didn't want to just make something that was just, oh, well, that's a nice flower. Because mm. to me, that's not how I think of this art. I would want, I want my, if my own eyes can be engaged by what I've done, and not in a narcissistic way, but I look at it and say, wow, okay, I didn't realize that was there. That, to me, is a harmony. Yeah, so it's almost as if things could be so harmonious that they're no longer um, appealing due to a, a, a disengagement. And I think that that is 
contextual. You know, I think that something that might be bland or disengaging in one setting might be engaging in another setting. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of the, the goal or the difficulty in being an artist is finding out in which situation you should be employing each method. Yep. So this idea of if harmony necessitates component pieces is obviously a really difficult question. So let's make it harder. Um, <laughs> rather than com- rather than component pieces, do you think harmony necessitates separate pieces? So with the guitar, right, is the string a separate piece? Hmm. Is it a component piece or is it a separate piece? With your paints, when you put them on the canvas, are they separate pieces or are they a component piece? Does, is harmony, you know, several pieces that are connected and working together as a component or are they a bunch of things that are separate that are working together? Okay, I'm going to start with the art part first because uh, as an artist, one once one has created a piece and it's in a position that one wishes to sign it, um, one usually gives it some kind of name and then in a parenthetical note underneath lists. So you, you uh, I, I just did one of this, this past week that uh, I said uh, the dimensions of the piece of uh, three feet by five feet of uh, acrylic on brown of crumpled paper uh, with, and then you go on and, and do the different kinds of things with, if you, if there's digital en- enhancement or digital filters or whatever. So essentially what you're doing is saying, here's the name of the piece. Here's the piece. This is the entirety. But here's a name for it, which might limit and affect what you're seeing in the piece. Hmm. Here's what I made the piece of, if you're really interested. Hmm. Um, and so that can take you down to thinking of those and say, wait a minute, I didn't even see that in there. Now I'm looking for uh, the piece. Because, you know, and one of them I said, uh, so I made a number of this week, and I, one of them was uh, photographs that I had used <clears throat> and then tore the photographs into small pieces and then I worked them into the paint. <laughs> so... <clears throat> There's photographs, but what you could then say is just photographic paper worked into the paint because it's not even a photograph anymore. But the fact that it was a photograph, to me, has something to do with what it's saying about the the subject. So, yes, they're individual pieces, but individual pieces aren't the art. Okay, so you think that harmony, harmony has separate pieces working together? Yes, they make a... Whole, but they can still be discerned, perhaps separately. Okay, yeah. You see, I think that I think that this is a really difficult question now because I think that it, it might even vary from thing to thing. Because with a guitar, right? So if I take the strings off, um, do I still have a guitar? I don't know that I do because if you have no strings, then the guitar can't function how it's supposed to. So, and if you have a string by itself. It's not good for much. You can't you can't create music with just a, a mm-hmm. string. I mean, you could you could put some tension on it and try to pick, but you're only going to get one note tone out of it unless you're trying to adjust the length or free fret it or something. So with a guitar, I, I almost think that are they separate pieces? Sure, a string is a separate thing from a, the body and neck of a guitar, but I think that 
in order to have a guitar, those two things are component pieces. Yes. Yes. Whereas, and I think that the human body is another good example, right? Like, I mean, is a kidney a separate thing from the body? Sure. Like you can have a kidney by itself, but what does a kidney do by itself with no body? It does nothing, right? It's mm-hmm. useless. Mm-hmm. With art, it's a little bit different, right? Because if, if you're using a photograph, a photograph by itself does have a purpose. It does serve a purpose. Um, and then you're, you're integrating as part of your whole. So in your, in your situation, I think that you're right. I think that you have separate pieces that are, you are then using to create a harmony. But I think in other cases, the pieces might not be separate. They might be necessarily components, but I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I think it's, it's probably good to be not sure because of those different circumstances. Let's move, let's take the same question, put it to, uh, something else. I think with philosophy, right? We're always looking at initial conceptions or the basics. You know, we're, again, we're, yeah. we're the sort of the, the root of science. So we are looking to reduce things as much as we can to try to get at the truth of what reality is. So when we look at that, right? Are atoms component pieces of the universe or are they separate pieces of the universe? And not, you know, <laughs> And of course, atoms, we know atoms aren't even the smallest piece. If we go down farther, then it gets even more interesting into the quantum level, right? We start looking at quarks or neutrinos or, or dark matter. Then it really becomes hard to tell because in some scientific theories, those pieces or gravitons, right, are not limited by the spatial dimensions or right. the time dimensions of the universe. And so if they're not limited by the dimensions of the universe, then they would seem to be separate pieces and not component pieces, right? Yeah. So, so let's go back to, remember we talked a few weeks ago about uh, the question would be, does it matter? Hmm. Well, matter matters. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and does, yes, it matters that I'm not a, a separate collection of, of tubes, of beakers, of, of stuff. I mean, there was a Star Trek episode once. It's such an old, old series. comes to mind where a, an alien is, of course, trying to take over the ship. And, and, and what it does is reduces the crewmen and the people are mostly on the ship. Almost all of the crew are reduced to these little, <laughs> it looks like little styrofoam cubes. They had all kinds of different colors of them and dots and stuff. And then, and then just to show that he was serious, the alien picked up one of the cubes and crushed it and, and all the dust went to the ground. Captain Kirk is looking at it and, and the alien brings back, reconstitutes the other person. So one crewman has been killed to prove to the captain that the alien's in charge. But when broken down its constituent elements, it couldn't be reconstituted. And we've talked about entropy and whether entropy can reverse all that. And and Sabine did that too in her book. So I think it's important to realize what goes into a piece of art or what goes into a piece of music from the, from the intellectual viewpoint, from training oneself or or being taught and trained um, to do so. But ultimately it's the piece itself. And as it works, I love jazz and blues and and jazz. you have so many constitutive elements that uh, just oscillate with each other and work with each other to create this 
this unique piece that even if it's replicated somewhere else, it's just a little bit different because of the the players and the instruments. Yeah, and I think the important concept, and this is something that um, is debated on the scientific level and, and in what I'm doing as well, is this idea of emergent properties, right? So when you have um, additive versus multiplicative versions of how reality works. So if it's additive, then, you know, you, if you just add up enough atoms and molecules and chemicals and fibers and stuff, you get a human being. Um, but like the example we've used for the past couple of weeks, water, right? When you add hydrogen and oxygen, you, you know, two gases, all of a sudden you get this new emergent property of liquid, right? Where does that come from? And so, yeah, there's something weird going on when these things start acting in harmony, when they start being linked. And the question, you know, whether they're separate things that are just put together and working together or whether they're components, right? There's There are two things that meet and now they're linked in such a way that they they operate in, as one is, is kind of a, an interesting I, I think, yes. And I think that there's a... Uh, if not a tentativeness, there is a there is always the possibility that the things will stop working together. Of, of peace is, is not the absence of war; it is an active work toward a harmony. Hmm. Okay, and <clears throat> with a with a classic painting. We know that pollution, air pollution, and, and how many numbers of visitors and everything that's in the air can affect the quality of the paint. The paint disintegrates. And so it has to be retouched or carefully taken care of, curated in a, a chemical way, which sometimes can lead a painting to go back to supposedly looking as it must have looked way back when, hundreds of years ago. We don't know that absolutely, but we're still approximating. But there's always this um, negotiation, negotiation, I think, going on. Yeah. I mean, if I, I, I do a piece of work and it's on brown crumpled paper, I know it's not going to look that way for decades. I'm making it for myself primarily. I'm making it for very few eyes. But I also know that it, it'll start, it's acrylic paint. It's going to start breaking and chipping and and so one could think of it as yep and so the art is still transforming even if it's the paint isn't just slogged onto paper and there it is and nothing more happens to it some people do art realizing that process and i think that's true of sound and i think it's true of politics and i think it's true of human beings with psychology we don't think we're just static oh well now i've made it i've reached the top of maslow's the ladder i have nothing more to do well then as you've said before if we stop moving, we're done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We see it. I mean, we see it all the time. Even you know, with with light, right? We, if you look out to the edges of the universe, everything is red shifted. Yeah, you know, everything is stretched out. Things change. I was just reading an interesting article on the Terracotta Army mm. in China. Mm -hmm. They said that each one they uncover within they're painted. A lot of people don't know that, but they're painted and. If they uncover them within minutes of being exposed to the air, the paint comes off. So they've developed a chemical solution so that as they uncover them, they coat them with it so that the paint stays on. Right, and that's this I that idea of of 
the arc transforming of the harmony. If you strum a guitar chord, it's not going to ring forever. It's going to, it's going to resonate and then end. And as it ends, um, you know, higher pitches fade out quicker and the lower pitches remain. So the harmony changes over time. So does, in considering harmony, do unity and balance have synonymous meanings? Uh, <clears throat> We've talked about unity to this point so we far, have. thinking about separate pieces, component pieces. Is this idea of balance, um, that, that this, the guitar is a good example, right? You have your strings and the low strings ring out for longer. So as that harmony changes, the balance of the harmony changes. The com- yeah. you know, the, but also the components that are contributing to it are changing. Right. So are the balance of the harmony and the unity of the harmony the same thing in this case? I don't think they are the same thing. I think both are in process, but I think the, the fundamental, for me, difference between the two is that the unity implies that a whole bunch of things are working together. But unity doesn't mean that they're working together well. Um, and an imbalance uh, acknowledges process, acknowledges that things can get out of balance, which means there's, a con- again, a constant negotiation with whatever is contributing to that unity. So you want unity, whatever we may mean by that in a play or in a piece of music or in a government, but we also want balance. And I think even if you, if you go to the United States at its beginning, we, th- we want to think <clears throat> that the founders were going for both, a unity and a balance. We right now don't live in that circumstance where we are unified and where we are, are balanced because balance requires that all all elements are acknowledged. And not just acknowledged, but taken into the larger unity. So I think a unity in that case is more static. We can say we're all united, but a balance would mean, that means that every one of us has needs that should not be ignored or <clears throat> attempted to be erased just because it would be simpler. Unity does not mean everyone agreeing. That's that's where we've forgotten. We've lost our way on it. So so suddenly I'm going into this, but it's but it, because I think harmony is not about utter agreement. I, as musicians, you've just dis- mm-hmm. described it. It is a give and take. It is a a play of a contribution of and an acknowledgement of. You have this note, you have this to contribute. Other note, you have that to contribute or color. I, I, I know that you, you as a color don't technically exist. <laughs> My receptors will tell me that you do. <laughs> they'll, they'll fill you in somehow. Uh, and we talked about that last week. So, so there, there, even in that, there's a process. The way to have harmony is that the brain seeks it. Yeah. Do Do you remember what was the definition of harmony you gave at the beginning of the show? Uh, I think I said something like that harmony was a process of 
individual pieces integrated to create something. Yeah. And so I think in that definition, I think that's very close to the definitionary definition that I I looked up. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really say anything about things working together. Um, It doesn't make any judgment on the character of the relationship, really. Right. Which I think is important to the discussion we were having about um, dissonance, right? Um, Because I think that there's this contextual element to harmony. So... Um, you know, like we were saying, something that might, if I play a dissonant chord by itself, you might go, oh, that's, that's not a good sound. But then if I put it in, in a song and I use it just once in the middle and surrounded by other more pleasant sounding chords, you might go, oh man, the, the tension that that creates right there is just the perfect thing that it needed. Yes. Or like you were talking yes. about with, with paintings, right? Um, you could paint a very bland picture that might not be engaging in one scenario but in another scenario or in, in a different light like you were talking about with your your uh, your sculpture last week in one light it looks like this sort of homogenous thing that's not really but then if you put in a different light and you let the shadows kind of take yes. it all of a sudden it becomes something new it becomes a new piece essentially in in, in my experience a wonderful art teacher dear old friend who has taught me so much but when i do a piece like on brown paper or whatever and with acrylics then I then I adjust all the saturations and colors, and I try it black and white. The black and white reveals things that that a deeply rich color uh, tells you something else. It all so one piece can become five, six, seven different uh, individual iterations of of moods, thoughts, impressions, and and it is because of the light. <laughs> So I, I I can't think of anything harmonic that isn't constantly in motion. Yeah, and so I think that that plays into this idea of unity and balance, right? I think so. Your sculpture is obviously unified. The unity of the piece does not change from context to context, but the balance of the piece actually does change depending on its context. Yes. The same thing with the dissonant chord. It's still a unified set of individual tones being played together. But although it's unified, the balance that it has is different in one context than in a different context. The one I'm thinking of, it's kind of a funny example. So um, I grew my hair and my beard really long for the winter. Um, it's still winter, but I just got sick of it, so I cut it off. <laughs> but I took some pictures um, to, you know, for posterity's sake from a few different angles, from the front, the side, and the back and stuff. And then... Um, you know, looking at them, you, you realize, oh, well, I never see myself from these angles. And so even though I'm a unified whole, you look at it and then it, it brings into um, your mind the, the saying that people have when they get, go to take pictures like, oh, this is my good side, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So a good side and a bad side. Well, technically, you're a unified whole as a person. So, <laughs> you know, but yet, you know, depending on which way you're looking at your, the context that you're in, you mm-hmm. see yourself as having better balance yeah, right yeah yeah so yeah i think that probably in that sort of regard unity and balance aren't the same thing there i think that a harmony as separate or as component pieces that make up a whole are unified but i think that the balance of the harmony it depends on something outside of the harmony i think it might be the context that it's being it's, it's context it's, and it's the context of one's own judgment 
uh, or the context of a, a judgment of a group to which you belong or whatever, it, it can move up a scale. But it is contextual. So do you think there are, are any situations where harmony is not a property of an interaction? Hmm. Not a property of the interaction. So let's put it this way. So yeah. we've talked about interesting questions. separate pieces, component pieces, <clears throat> harmony. Um, now, you hmm. could have, do you think you could have separate or component pieces that are making up a harmonious whole without there necessarily being an interaction? Or does everything co-act with some measure of agreement? It either, it either co-acts with some measure of agreement or it intentionally or unintentionally dismantles. Here, two examples. <clears throat> I watched, uh, my wife and I watched a marvelous version of King Lear on the National Theater um, out of Britain a week ago. Ian McKellen was Lear. It's just the most nuanced Lear performance that I've seen. But there are things that happen in theater, just as in literature and other, I'm sure it happened in, in engineering, but there are things that happen which can drop you out of the story. That's the phrase we use in theater. Hmm. Or, or, and there, there's, a, as you, I'm sure you've read there, there's this quintessential scene where King Lear, his daughter, two of his daughters have betrayed him. He's given, he's divided his kingdom to three daughters. Whoever said he was the best for they, how they loved him most got the biggest piece. It's just fraught with problems all the way through. But he's, he's going mad. He's on a, on a, an open field in a lightning storm, rain, and he has a, a, a fool, a jester who's been staying with him. Now, this scene has been played all kinds of ways, but in this particular production, which is a video, which is a filming of the, of the actual play production, uh, out comes Ian McKellen with the fool, and it's, pouring rain the, the staging the, the stage design the set design has been such that we've got a rain shower coming down in the middle uh, in this extended circle from the stage and they're doing this scene in the rain now there's thunder of the light flashes in the back the lights and the thunder that have been in theater forever uh, uh, acoustically better now of course in the 21st century that rain really bothered me a lot because it's it was to me uh, a directorial misstep. It was an an insult to an audience, and doubly so when later on there's a scene in which a a an estranged son who's pretending to be crazy helps helps a fa his father who's uh, been abused by the people in power and had his eyes taken away. And so the, the pretend crazy, the son is leading the father, doesn't know he, he's the son. The father wants to commit suicide. He wants to go to the, uh, the cliffs of Dover, essentially a high peak to, to just jump off. And he's convinced that he, the son takes him to the edge of, and then the stage is just the stage, it's flat stage. Well, that's, so it's all supposed to be in your head as it is in the mind of the old man. But, uh, but in all the rest of the play, we've had lightning and wind, we've had bird songs, we've had all kinds of things. In this scene, there's no sound whatsoever. The directors decided, nah, 
but there's still a little puddle of water from the rain scene because they couldn't drain the rain off the stage entirely. So again, because of those decisions, I was dropped out of the narrative when if they just trusted the text. So this is a long way of saying that, that there are elements that can disrupt the harmony and not just disrupt for a moment with an atonality or a dissonance, but uh, a, a disruption that it takes time to then get back into the production, hmm. uh, I, I, and and I and that happens in art. Sometimes you do things you don't even realize you're doing on a canvas or or with ink and pen and ink, or whatever it happens to be. But there's an element that ends up being down in a corner, maybe a splatter of paint you didn't expect, but then you notice it, and and you have to decide: is that drawing attention away from, or is it a color? that it's just a spot of the same color that happens in the upper edge of the painting, and so it's unifying it. So it can either be a, a, a disruption or it can be a unification, and that depends on the artist's judgment. Yeah, yeah, I think that, you know, it's it's interesting because, you know, harmony, this idea of, you know, separate or constituent pieces creating a whole, um, like you said, I think that, I think that there's always motion, right? And I think that as long as there's motion between the pieces, you're, you'll have a harmony, whether mm-hmm. it's, um, you know, pleasing or atonal or dissonant or whatever. But I think if you, if you take away that property of the interaction between the elements, um, it's hard to say that you have harmony anymore. Yeah. I do know. you, do you think a deterministic universe would be necessarily more harmonious than one with free will? Yeah, you were just drinking the coffee for <laughs> would a deterministic universe be more harmonious than one with free will necessarily more harmonious ne- necessarily well yeah. <laughs> oh man do I want to wrestle with this alright so, <laughs> so maybe intentionally maybe the intent the deterministic intent would be to make it more harmonious. Uh, I don't. I don't believe in an utterly deterministic universe. So I'm stepping aside from that because, of course, as philosophers, we consider all kinds of ideas. I. I can see a deterministic universe uh, regimenting a. Uh, a society, a deterministic, deterministic universe, uh, limiting, of course, the number of choices one has of ways to live and so on. So there might be a regimentation that a uh, culture develops out of because, well, we can't live in the middle of a desert. It's gotten too hot. We have to live somewhere else. Um, I'm not even sure that's deterministic. Let's just, let's just say for a moment that it is. The anthropic principle works. Everything's been created for us to have a life on this world. Um, and everything that we do is because of our, our, our genes and our, and maybe our nurturance of uh, the phylogenetics. And we put all it together and we say, yep, I couldn't make any other decision than the one that I make. Well, can I make decisions that are harmonious? Yes. But are they, are they absolutely creative and free? No. And in a 
universe in which free will operates, um, there's going to be a lot more. Uh, there'll there'll be a lot more visible chaos, maybe. Hmm. Um, but there would still could there's still the possibility of a harm, harmony because again all of the pieces that come together aren't meant to just be static and and bland. They are meant to work together toward something larger. Yeah, I think I have an interesting um, analogy for this from my studies, which is it'll tie into what we were talking about earlier. So um, when they talk about humans um, in a comparative fashion to other animals psychologically, um, they say humans have, they have, um, a, there's a, a correlation, an inverse correlation between the plasticity of an organism's psychology and the rate of maturation. So it's called neoteny. Um, and so with that, what they're saying is that if you have an animal, um, and it's born, the quicker it gets to adulthood, the less diversified its behavior will be. And so as a result, humans, obviously the most psychologically plastic animal, right? You can put us in any type of situations and we'll react in novel ways you know there will be creativity in in the way that we treat things whereas if you have an ant right an ant might be born essentially an adult um but it's gonna have a limited number of behavioral and um in you know and uh psychological um things that it can do yeah it's context again right because if that ant is operating in a context that works with the psychological and behavioral adaptations that have been passed on to it through its genetics, through its phylogeny, then it will act harmoniously. But if you have devastating climate change, right? All of a sudden you change the context that this ant is living in. It does not have the plasticity. It does not have um, the behavioral repertoire um, to to change the way that it behaves in order to act harmoniously in the new context. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think that that, you know, that is, is sort of part of it. N- now there's a huge trade-off there, right? The longer it takes you to grow up, the more vulnerable you are, right? <laughs> but this idea of, is a deterministic universe necessarily more harmonious than a free will one? I don't think that that's a question you can answer really because it would depend on the nature of the deterministic universe. That's the context, right? So if we were to say um, that, okay, um, in this deterministic universe, there's an all-loving, all-powerful God that makes everything easy and pleasant for everybody, then sure, that deterministic universe is going to be necessarily more harmonious. But if you have a a deistic universe, right, where... um, some god came along and wandered the watch or maybe there's an alien running a simulation that is going to watch you fail in order to learn how it can survive or maybe there's nobody out there it's just you know um existential you yeah just yeah just the um, interaction of brains and it's chaotic it's chaotic in the sense that nobody's controlling it but it's deterministic in the sense that everything is projecting from one point I think that there's there's really a, an infinite number of ways in which to 
measure or conclude how harmonious a deterministic universe could be. Yes. So I think that I almost don't know if you can answer that. It's question. a it's a universe. It's well, I made the attempt because <clears throat> after all, <laughs> but I don't. I think you come to the same thing. Um, <clears throat> mathematically, things are going to emerge. And evolutionarily, things are going to emerge. Whether it was created to be that way, whether it just fell out that way, a harmony of a kind happens. Yeah, that's a, and that's an interesting theoretical question, right? If we think of harmony as being the interaction of either component or separate pieces that participate in movement, it makes you wonder how how little you would actually need to have harmony and you know what what some of those those universes could look like these yeah, these emergent yeah. properties if you have emergent properties from mixing something as simple as oxygen and hydrogen right these things unite and have an emergent property that's harmonious it makes you wonder what what alternate universes could look like if you have different elements, different well, things that are... Uh, yes, because you could have a creature that evolves to a certain place and says, no, oh, I like this. Hmm. I don't want any more tools. I don't need anything else. We're just going to stifle ourselves at this point. We have this drive. We, we don't want harmony. I, I would argue that human beings ultimately do. We constantly wrestle against harmony. Well, that's interesting because, I mean, they say that that's part of the reason Neanderthals went extinct. Yeah. Was they obviously highly evolved. They had a higher brain mass than humans did. They were capable mm -hmm. of language, capable of tool building. Mm -hmm. But eventually they reached a point where their technology stopped advancing. They reached a point and they said, no, this is good enough. And then humans overtook them. And that's an interesting psychological thing because, you know, I think that, like I talked about earlier, evolutionary theories of psychology dominated during the, the latter parts of the 20th century. And now they're starting to find some, some flaws in them. But that part of that paradigm is this idea that, um, you know, the forces of evolution are always acting on us. So we're always changing. Yes. It's not necessarily false, but what we what they're finding is that part of changing might be forcing yourself to stay the same <laughs> so it, it, it's this really strange paradoxical situation where um yeah you're changing but you're not you're changing because you're not changing while the environment is changing while selective pressures are saying you should be changing in order to address these, you're saying, no, I'm going to stay the same. Um, and you'd think that Neanderthals or other extinct species would be a cautionary tale about the dangers of attempting to stay the same in a changing environment. Hmm. I think humans are going to have to um, wrestle with this situation ourselves in the coming decades. But That's really well said. I, I, I just was thinking of the word retirement when you were thinking about hmm. that. Does, does a group in the evolutionary chain retire. We love to make big about <laughs> retirement in this culture, yeah. right? <clears throat> What's retirement? Um, 
The dictionary says it's a state of being retired. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> Very helpful. Hmm. But then there's withdrawal. Withdrawal from one's position or occupation or from active working in life. Now, listen to the, hmm. the biases built into that, the assumptions. Withdrawal. Well, that can be done one way or another. There's many ways to be withdrawn. Uh, from active working life. How dare anyone tell me that I'm not working, being a grandfather? That sounds like the definition of death. Art, doesn't it? <laughs> from active working life. Okay, the, the Neanderthals retired. Hmm. They had their golden years. They stopped. Hmm. I, that's not harmonious. Yeah. So this is this has been a, a interesting conversation. I appreciate you letting me beat up on you because this is this whole conversation has just been a string of metaphors essentially it. because it's so abstract that trying to trying to wrap your head around it and come to a way of understanding it is difficult. But I think that we did I think that we did come to to understand harmony a little bit better through all of the the messy metaphors and the back and forth, which is that you know it can be separate separate pieces it can be component pieces um it involves a constant motion um there's unity in harmony but the balance of the harmony and the pleasantness of it is going to depend on the situation that it's in and um you know some of these bigger questions that that lie outside of scientific ability to address them mm -hmm. that are philosophical in nature um are also a bit relativistic and are going to be difficult for us to answer but are interesting to think about nonetheless. Indeed. So until next time, keep popping.